Chronic Illness Therapist podcast. This is meant to be a place where people with chronic illnesses can come to feel heard, seen, and safe while listening to mental health therapists and other medical professionals talk about the realities of treating difficult conditions. This might be a new concept for you, one in which you never have to worry about someone inferring that it's all in your head. We dive deep into the human side of treating complex medical conditions and help you find professionals that leave you feeling hopeful for the future. I hope you love what you learn here, and please consider leaving a review or sharing this podcast with someone you love. Are just kind of looking to learn the basics of acceptance work. Um, what does it mean, and what skills can help you kind of lean into acceptance? You know, we talk a lot about acceptance on this podcast and what it is and what it isn't. So I won't repeat that all here. But if you'd like to sign up for this membership, um, I'm still kind of figuring out exactly what it's going to entail, but I know it will at least have videos, training videos, um, and a transcription with each video, uh, as well as like some worksheets when applicable. Uh, and eventually the goal is to have a community where you know people can chat with each other and kind of like a Facebook group, but I don't think it'll be on Facebook. I think it'll be um, on a different platform. So we will, I'll keep you updated on that. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about that as I learn more about it and exactly you know what it's going to be, um, then sign up for the email list and I'll, the link will be in the show notes. And yeah, I won't spam you with, with lots of emails, but just updates about what's going on in the membership and, and what it all entails. So thanks. Lexi Gross is a licensed clinical mental health counselor and somatic experiencing practitioner in training. Lexi has worked in college counseling settings, wilderness therapy settings, community mental health, and is currently in private practice. Most of Lexi's experience clinically is with young adults, adolescents, and parents, and in her private practice, she primarily works with individuals diagnosed with chronic illnesses and those who struggle with undiagnosed or mysterious symptoms. While she works with chronic illness in general, she also works with environmental biotoxin illnesses like mold illness, Lyme disease, chronic fatigue syndrome, multiple chemical sensitivity, and chronic inflammatory response syndrome. She supports clients in finding some normalcy and identity outside of their treatments and syndromes and helps them navigate through the grieving process of experiencing these symptoms and receiving diagnosis. She also provides mental health support and psychoeducation to family members and partners as there are unique challenges that come with being the family member and partner of someone with a chronic illness. Lexi herself has recovered from chronic inflammatory response syndrome, SIBO, mold illness, and other chronic environmental sensitivities, so she knows how difficult the journey is when searching for support. Hi, Lexi. Thanks for being back on the show. Of course. I'm really Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you again today. Lexi was on another episode. Oh, I probably should know what episode it was before we started talking, but that's okay. I'm not, I'm not a podcast professional yet. (laughs) But yeah, Lexi was on a a previous podcast. We talked a lot about the body and just how chronic illness kind of, I think we talked a little bit about relationships, feeling like a burden. That sounds like, like what our conversation was about. And today we want to talk about, we want to talk about shame specifically how it comes up in the body when you start to feel better or when you start to kind of 
work on some of this stuff in therapy, especially through a somatic experiencing lens, which is known to help reduce physical pain in the body. It's not ever guaranteed, but it's not an outcome that we go in saying, you know, Hey, we're going to reduce your pain, but a byproduct of SE often is that your pain is, is reduced. And so this can kind of sometimes throw you for a loop as the client, because you're kind of like, how is this happening? Like, we're, we're just talking about this, you know, does that mean this is in my head and and that, no, that's not what that means. So Lexi and I are going to talk about that today. Like, do you want to kind of take off? Sure. Yeah. When you reached out with this comment, it was like really nice timing because I've been working with, I mean, a number of my clients on different various types of pain or symptoms and Often after spending time with a client session, we do some SE related work and maybe we're like really focusing on pain and it's available to pay attention to it and work with that and how it shows up. And usually there's like a reduction in it in some way or like a different quality that comes up. And that's like a really interesting thing for my clients to experience. And then the next session will come up and be like, oh my God, I had a flare up and I couldn't do any of this. And it just stayed and it was X, Y, Z, and I don't know where it came from and why didn't these things work? And usually when we like slow those things down, there's like more to the story. And I think that's where the shame and like pain can get complicated is we have these single stories of what our pain is or what these symptoms are. And when we quote unquote, fix it in one way, we think it's going to apply in all these other ways when like the body's nuanced, the pain is nuanced, the symptoms come out are nuanced. And so how we want to like work with it also needs to be that way. So there's like flexibility around (laughs) when it comes up and what it needs to to, like address it. Yeah. You just mentioned the word single story. Can you kind of give some context about what that means? Sure. So uh, let's see. I use a lot of languaging around like the story we tell ourselves and it's usually attached to pain, anxiety, symptoms, anything that a belief system that we have about ourselves. And so a single story usually might be like a snapshot or a thought that comes up or meaning around why we are having this pain or this symptom at this time or why our anxiety is so bad at this time. And the single story tends to be like, kind of like with like blinders on and like, can be rigid when we're in that more activated place. There's less room for compassion, perspective taking, flexibility. So a single story is, yeah, like maybe what we're attaching to this pain that's usually from the past that we've maybe misapplied. Yeah. Like for example, even, even as simple as I'm flaring up because I ate nightshades yesterday or I'm flaring up. And it's not to say that different things don't impact your pain. Don't get me wrong, but sometimes, yeah, we attribute just this one cause or I'm a failure and that's why my pain is bad. So there's like the emotional piece, the physical piece, the environmental piece. We just have to blame kind of something. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of clients that I work with, and I'm sure you work with around like chronic illness, chronic pain, very skilled at meaning making, very skilled at finding what is the cause of this thing. And, And that is a one of the ways that we regulate is having meaning around why something is happening. The challenge here is that it's not as helpful because it's overused and then we get attached to those meanings. And if we know the meaning, then things will be okay when really that's usually not how it plays out. That's not necessarily the equation. And the fact that there's usually several causes. Absolutely. 
right? Yeah. If you had nightshades <laughs> sure. yesterday, maybe nightshades do cause like an inflammatory response in your sure. body. But if you also were stressed and, you know, and had a bad day at work and, Absolutely. you know, drank alcohol the night before and like, and you're just doing all this stuff mm-hmm. together, the nightshades might throw you over the edge. But if you did none of those things, or if none of those things happened to you, then mm-hmm. it might barely even affect you. Right. Yeah. And so this is a pivot of what I was working on yesterday with client a couple of weeks ago is one being like a food being a big trigger for a lot of challenges and, and digestive discomfort. And when we like slow down to figure out, okay, well, what might've like actually added to this flare? Like one, we are around the holidays, like that's a pretty intense time whether it's like family dynamics of like your own family, if you're visiting in-laws and those dynamics, as well as food being like, it's a major thing that is a part of this holiday that we just experienced. And that can be challenging. And so really being able to like rewind, slow, slow down and go back is like, wow, there was a lot of anxiety embracing leading up to that event that it makes sense that afterwards there was a flare, not necessarily because of the food you ate, that could be part of it just because there was so much tension embracing of like worry and fear of what might happen on that day. Yeah. I have a, an Instagram friend. (laughs) We met on Instagram like five years ago and we've just, we've always stayed in contact through chat. And he was telling me that he went into the cold, like a couple days ago and there was just fear there's fear around cold because he does mm-hmm. have a disorder where cold really yep. braces his it hurts him so he went out into the cold and he was angry at himself about like the shoes he wore and like it was just all these emotions and mm-hmm. um and then had a lot of shame and he actually said that I could share this so yeah <laughs> uh, but yeah just the shame and he, he even recognized like it actually wasn't the cold that caused this flare-up it was more so all of the fear and the shame that was kind of wrapped mm-hmm. up around it. So the cold is yeah. an effect, but it's just not totally. the only reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the thing also about shame is depending on there's so like, I, I love shame. It's like complex, but also like simple and can be so many different things to work with. And if you are in a place where you're like well-resourced and are able to be present with some of the shame and be curious of it, of like, well, what's another name for it? Or like, what might it be overcoupled with? Or like, what might it be in place of? Because usually it pops up in relationship to other emotions or sensations or unpleasant things that we experienced in the past and had, or were probably left alone with them and didn't know how to handle them. And so they were really scary and in our nervous system and body and brain was like, I don't want to do that ever again. So I'm just going to avoid, avoid, avoid. And a level of shame of like, I didn't know what to do with it. Something's wrong with me. Again, that's coming more from like younger selves, like, yeah, like children, toddlers, teenagers, because we don't have the skills to understand that stuff. And so when shame comes up around some of these symptoms, there is an opportunity to go. It's like a choice point. Like we can explore the belief system that is showing up around it and start to unravel. It's like, is this my belief system? Is it my family's belief system around these emotions that's being passed down to me? Or like, maybe we go in the other direction of like, okay, so it came up, how can we acknowledge it? And what are we able to do in terms of like action to move towards, or how do we want to address it? So there's a lot of different angles to go with it. um, And it presents like really great opportunities for like incredible work. Yeah. I think this is a concept too. I mean, I think a lot of people, even 
struggle to start therapy because they're like, I already know like what I should be doing. I don't, and it, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you talk about the choice point, this is, this is something we use in acceptance and commitment therapy. And <laughs> it's basically just a diagram that says like, you know, here are the options, here are the obstacles, like, what do you want to do? Which sounds really mm-hmm. simplified, but in order to move away from actions that don't align with our values in life and to move toward actions that do align with our values, there's a bunch of skills you have to learn in the mm-hmm. middle. Yeah. And that's kind of where, where we come in as therapists. It's the, the mindfulness skills and, and not just, this gets a little, even a little prescriptive. It really, the way that I work and I, I'm pretty sure the way you work, Lexi, like we're not prescriptive and that's why therapy is so important. It's not, here's a mindfulness skill, go out and do it. And then you're going to be able to then accomplish this goal that we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. it's not that simple. And so in therapy, we're always, you know, it is, it's very individualized, which Mm -hmm. sounds so vague, but we all have different childhood wounds. We all have different obstacles. We all have different skills that work with us or don't work with us. Mm -hmm. You know, deep breathing sometimes sends some clients into a panic. So if we're working on that together and we're becoming aware of that together, then we know that that's not a skill to put on your, on your list of skills. Absolutely. Yeah. I I love that you bring that up because that's like something that I, when I initially talk with clients, some of them would be like, yeah, I don't like journaling. I don't like yeah, breathing exercises or I'm like, great, we're not going to do those things. And like you are well-versed in somatic, like mind, body interventions and experiential work for regulation or or noticing what's coming up in in the body. And my guess is that similar to me is when we teach them and guide and, and do them with our clients in session, it's then afterwards of like, okay, this is how we can maybe fit it into your life of what the thing is and how to practice it and how to notice it and setting up expectations for what to expect and not expect from it, because it's not going to fix things. It's not going to make the thing go away. It's going to help you move through it while still having access to clearer thinking. That's usually the, <laughs> the goal of it. Yeah. <laughs> and to have yes. a new experience in your body with that emotion or activation so that it, you start telling your brain like, oh, I can handle this. Yes. Yes. I love that. Proper expectations. Yeah. Cause I think, you know, with social media, especially it's like five ways to like calm your nervous system. And it's like, oh, okay. So if I do these five things, my nervous system's going to be calm. And it's like, yeah. no, doesn't work like that. <laughs> Maybe yeah. if you, you know, if you're in that headspace and like, you've already done a ton of work, I'm yeah. sure. But... Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. The same with the titles of like, here's a trauma release thing. I'm like, well, hold up. That's you're not going to release trauma just by doing this thing. There's a whole lot that goes with it. Best to do it in relationship with someone else. Yes. And I think that that's often missed of, yeah, we, we need connection for healing. We need connection for any sort of integration. And those tools are, can be really supportive and helpful and figuring out which ones work for you with, again, the right expectations. And also knowing that doing this one stretch or this one breathing exercise is not going to unlock all of the trauma in your body. Yes. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. And fortunately, that would be really intense. Right. Yeah. My thought was like, or what if you do this, you know, yoga pose that like touches this part of your body that did was storing trauma and you're alone and you have no resources. And now you're like in a puddle of tears on the floor and you don't know what to do. And, you know, and that's, that's partly okay too. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. 
you know, it's all part of the process. Sometimes we, we do, we have breakdowns and that's okay too. But mm-hmm. like you said, healing happens in, in connection with others. Um, mm-hmm. So it's important to have someone you trust. And I think it's hard to find a therapist who you click with, all, you know, right away. You might, mm-hmm. you might go through several and then it changes over the years too. kind of their mm-hmm. skill set and their personality might match where you're at when mm-hmm. you're 25, but not when you're 35. <clears throat> right. Right. And yeah. Yeah. Well, and to bring that back in with like shame is this piece of, and this is, I think, fortunately, I have the relationship with some of these clients that they come and share these experiences of these old belief systems, whether it's like chronic anxiety and beating themselves up for it showing up and having a hard time working through it. But then once they share it with me and I'm like, well, let's slow down. Like there's rigid thinking going on. Like this is bullshit. What you're telling me, like, you know, that, which is fine, but like we're, we're, we know it together and let's go back to this unique situation of what might have like, yeah, triggered this response. And usually in that connection, the sharing of it, it, there, it's like easily diffused. I'm like, oh, right. Yeah. I totally understand now, yeah, we I was triggered on this like pretty major belief system around money that came up and I was surprised by it and then went into this spiral, but came out of it a lot quicker than typical. So it's being able to share shame just like thrives in secrecy and being able to speak to it often resolves it more than anything else. Yeah. There's something so magical about you having like a a secret thought where it's like too shameful to share, but you know, your therapist kind of helps drag it out of you a little bit. You finally Mm -hmm. say it out loud and then they're just like, oh yeah, like people have that thought. Now let's work through that. And you, Mm -hmm. there's no shame. There's no, it's like, what? I'm accepted. I'm like, I'm not a terrible person because I have this thought. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. It's it's so healing. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. I'm wondering too. So going back to the piece about like pain and SE kind Mm -hmm. of somatic experiencing kind of helping with pain. Mm -hmm. Can you maybe speak to that a little bit and then kind of also going into how that might freak some clients out? Yeah. So let's see in a maybe simplified form when working with, or like simplified generalized form of working with pain or symptoms related to chronic anything after building just like skills, awareness, resourcing, whether it's like sensation or imagery, all these different things start to help my clients goal. And for myself, it's like building vocabulary that works for different qualities, different types of sensations, which can be pain in our bodies and starting to learn the nuances of them. And that is part of my work is helping my clients and our brains learn that there's different levels of pain and different qualities of it. And each in that way, like often, like maybe we tend to it in different ways or we need different needs. Some of that being is like some qualities and levels of pain we can be present with and we can actually notice and pay attention to some of it for a little bit and then go into a resource or go into a place that is less painful or has an opposite experience or something to, again, like this pedulation piece of going between the hard thing into this thing that is more digestible. It helps, yeah, it slows down the process. Our, our nervous system usually can digest it and be present with the unpleasant thing a little bit easier. 
Yeah. Can I, can I, yeah, can I give an example of what, yeah. So kind of when you're, let's just talk about joint pain for a moment. So you can have like achy joints, you can have shooting pains in your joints. There's, those are two different types of pains. And then on top of that, there's different levels of severity. So Mm -hmm. maybe your achiness is like, you know, it's barely even noticeable, or maybe it's so bad that you literally cannot get out of bed that day. Mm -hmm. But when you're, especially when you're in that middle period, it's so hard to verbalize that to the people around you Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. you barely understand it. Mm -hmm. You don't have the language for it and they've never even experienced it. So how can they understand it? Yeah. So when we're talking about getting specific and learning the nuance of pain in the body, that's what we're doing. It's not just like, oh, is this a level one or level 10? It's Mm -hmm. okay. This is achy and it's hot. And Mm -hmm. how big is that sensation in that spot? Is it the Mm -hmm. size of a softball or is it the size of, or is it a flat kind of, you know, superficial, like on the superficial part of your body? Mm-hmm. And so in somatic experiencing, we get really good at, at describing the pain and in doing that, it brings yeah. this awareness to your body that you're able to really trust your, I think it comes down to mm-hmm. trusting yourself more. Like yeah. mm-hmm. you're not confused about what's happening. And then even if someone doesn't understand you or even quote, believe you, it's so much easier to handle because you have such a solid grasp mm-hmm. on it. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're able to know what you need to do with it. And that's the piece that we aim for is that with those different types of pain, both like, whether it's like achy or shooting or stabbing or burning or like throbbing, whatever, and the intensity we, if we can like touch into it peripherally, at least, and know of like, oh, this is a type of pain I can, when I pay attention to it and do these things that supports my you know system moving through it I can handle it better or it like decreases it or I'm able to notice it and distract away or it doesn't feel you know in all up in my face then great that's incredible that we can work with that and there's types of pain that we don't want to pay attention to because we do it doesn't feel contained or it feels too much and overwhelming and we're like it can lead more into I guess it really like an inescapable attack in a way of like this piece of it is too much. I can't distract, dissociate, take enough of these supplements or medications to help with the pain for it to go away. And so in those situations, we don't want to pay full attention to it. We, we want to use different resources to support. And that is part of working with pain, that way of being able to to notice it, name it with whatever words make sense. And sometimes it's images or movement or whatever, so that, yeah, clients and ourselves have a better idea of how to approach it, how to ask for what we need or do the thing that we need to tend to it. Yeah. And when clients start to experience a reduction in pain, at least in my experience, sometimes there's like an immediate wow, this is amazing. And and keep in mind too, for the audience, when there's a reduction in pain in session, that doesn't mean you're going to walk away from session. And now that pain has gone, it just means (laughs) we've just had a brief experience Mm -hmm. with being able to reduce the pain a little bit. And then the pain will rise back up and it will fall back down. And we're just learning how to feel it all so that we Mm -hmm. can be aware of, of the pieces that are of the moments where our pain isn't as severe in that there's more shame and guilt Mm -hmm. that comes up a lot of times because it's like, wait, if my pain is lower, like, is this what people are are talking about when they're saying I'm it's in my head or it's, you know, they don't believe me. And it's like, wait, wait, no, no, my pain is real. I have to like, and it almost keeps us stuck in that Mm -hmm. higher, higher Mm -hmm. level. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, then there's belief systems around our pain and our identity tied into someone with chronic pain and what that means for us and having to like, yeah, that, <laughs> there are a lot of other barriers that can block that as well that show up when there is a reduction of pain is like, what does this mean? And then sometimes the hyper-focusing and the guilt and the shame, then it like leads to more intensity at different times. And it's in the way of like SE, we work a lot with like waves of knowing that there's always expansion and contraction happening at all times in our body of like our breath, like the like contraction of our heart, like the heart rate, different things. And like, same with like the electrical impulses of our yeah nervous system sending out signals. There's activation and deactivation and these waves. And that's the same that happens with like everything basically, especially with pain. There's going to be times where it feels really good and there's less. And then there are times where it comes up and being able to ride and know that it will change and looking for the small shifts that are letting us know that we are starting to like come down the wave or crest the wave can help us instead of continuing to ratchet up on this wave of this fear, this anxiety of like, oh, here's the faint, like this pain again, after I've experienced no pain, what does this mean? And being stuck in that place can just continue to have us stuck in this, like, I guess, like escalating wave. And when we're able to notice when we're in that place or like the, the crusting of the wave and notice the, the little cues of like, oh, wow, maybe my breath started to like feel a little bit more expansive as it's coming down and we can pay attention to that or like, oh, I'm able to like notice my feet more or I'm able to like be a little a tiny bit more present that can help us cue into like, oh, things are shifting and, and cool. And they're going to shift again. <laughs> yeah. And this is where, you know, again, therapy comes into play because this, this ties so much into kind of your family dynamics and the messages you heard growing up. And, you know, if no one believed you or if they minimized mm. everything you mm -hmm. said and did, your body literally has to respond with more and more signals to say, no, believe me, I'm in pain. Yeah. Pay attention. <laughs> pay attention. Exactly. So it's, you know, again, this is where it gets tricky. It's like the pain is not in your head. It's a real physical thing mm -hmm. happening inside your body. You yeah. feel the pain it's there. It's real. But again, if your body says, you know, no one believes me, the danger signals in your body say, turn them on higher, turn them on higher. Like mm -hmm. see me, I'm here. And mm -hmm. physically you're in more pain. So it's tricky yeah. because, you know, we, in therapy, all we can do with the individual is talk about what they have control over. And I think that that's a really, a really great tool. And at the same time, your environment, you know, it, it, we don't, we don't, it can't just control every aspect of how you feel. You, there has to be mm -hmm. a level where you're able to deflect other people's judgments and criticisms, mm -hmm. but at the same time, your environment really does impact you. Yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah. It's just yeah. figuring out what you want to do with that. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I think, where with certain clients is this bringing this SE and after both these like bottom up, top down. So bottom up being like starting in sensation, the body, the physical things and how our body's responding to things, having a playthrough. And what does that mean in terms of like how it impacts the quality of our thoughts or yeah, like how we're responding to things, things like that, or like what we're the meaning making and then the top down is like noticing our thoughts and naming them and addressing and being able to be present with them and then noticing how 
when we shift our perspective or maybe challenge them cognitively in these beliefs, how that impacts our body. So like that's more or less a simplified version of the bottom up, top down. But where some of that these two can meet is with these, it comes back to the stories of like when we are in an environment, maybe at home with a lot of our families or around coworkers that might be challenging or whatever it might be. B, there can be these alarm systems like these people don't believe me they don't believe me and going into those old beliefs of like I must be making this up or this isn't right or I have too many needs like I'm always asking for things any of those types of things and being able to come in with challenging thoughts and and some self-compassion for self of kind of like your adult self this is some like parts work of like adult self and child self of like okay I, I got you. I can take care of this. Yes, they're telling me these things aren't real or aren't as intense. And I know that what is happening is real. And with that, this is how I'm going to take care of me. This is how I can take care of myself. These are the tools that I have. Like, I believe you kind of to yourself. And that isn't going to be a quick fix. It's not going to mean things are going to shift right away, but it starts to develop this relationship with self of like, yeah, I got you. Like, I got it. We don't need to be protecting ourselves all of the time. This situation right here isn't as dire as like my brain is telling me and like, I got it. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we talk about the conversation around beliefs, a lot of times the question is like, especially on social media and whatnot, you'll see a lot about like, what are your beliefs and let's look at them. And I think that's helpful, but what's, I think even more helpful is when you think about where you learned them from. Absolutely. Then yeah. you start to to actually be able to reflect and be like, is this something I believe or is this something that I was taught to believe? What mm-hmm. does the rest of society believe? Is that in alignment mm-hmm. with how I feel? And and then to even answer like, is that in alignment with how I feel? That's where the somatic work comes back in too. Because mm-hmm. in order to know how you feel, you have to be able to pay attention to be aware of the nuances of these different sensations. So yeah. it's all it all works together. And that's why I individualized care is so Mm -hmm. important yeah 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 absolutely and I think that it's been this timing of this podcast is great like just going through like themes with so much that's been coming up in a lot of my like own reading and work with clients around these belief systems and where we come from and a lot of it being like generational trauma generational I guess styles of parenting or generational relationships with shame and and probably a lot of it's just more on the forefront of it being the holidays we're all spending more time with our families anticipating that myself included of like ooh, what's gonna play out this time and when we're able to yeah be curious and go into those interactions with huh, I wonder where my parent got that from. Or I wonder what it was like when I was like a little one and experienced that reaction that I just saw now when I was younger. Like, I wonder how that might've impacted how I felt about this or what I might've needed. And that's a lot of the SE is like, what would have been helpful in that moment? Like, what did I really need? (laughs) And, And being able to yeah, just ask the question. You may not know it right away because that's also part of the development of knowing what we need, but just putting it out there, it starts to open up the possibility for your brain and body to be like, oh, right, you're going to listen to me. Cool. Here's an opening. I'll try and show you what you need. Yeah. Yeah. Just building that. The question helps you build that curiosity muscle. Mm-hmm. 
which then helps you kind of look for the answer in different places in your life. And yeah, a lot of times, you know, clients will say like, uh, you know, I, I, my parents did the best they could, which is true. They did. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they, I, I totally understand now why, you know, why they couldn't do better, you know, and I actually think that's a big part of growing and learning is being able to understand and see your parents as human and knowing that they didn't have the resources and the skills. And also your inner child did not, this is like, this is what you were saying earlier, your inner child did not care or know. And that part of you is still alive and well Mm -hmm. in your body. So Mm -hmm. we want to integrate what we know now as an adult with that inner child inside of us by giving it, not by just telling the inner child, (laughs) They, they did the best they could. You're, they don't care what the inner child needed. <laughs> like, yeah, they don't. They don't care. They needed nurturing and they needed to believe them and to tell them that they're good because we internalize our parents' beliefs about themselves. So if your parent also thought the world was bad, they were bad, you were bad, your five-year-old self believes you you were bad and there's still a part of you that believes that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And coming on this topic of shame, and I think why I like it so much, or I've developed to like working with it and reading more about it and how it plays out in the different ways is shame is what happens when we are left alone with things that we don't yet know how to deal with. And so that is where, when, and, and, you know, whether it's like a really big emotion or being a sensitive kid and having all of these feelings that come up and it's not you know, if someone were to look at it, it's like, it's not that big of a situation, but for that little one, not knowing how to deal with frustration or disappointment or a minor loss of like a toy being broken or whatever it might be, or being left out and not having the proper like caregiver to help guide through that. And we instead are left alone or maybe even punished for something that we don't know why it then for that brain, for that development that unfortunately what usually like the meaning that comes out of it like the equation of like this must mean that I'm wrong that I did something like that I did something wrong that I'm not good enough in this way rather than having an adult be like oh yeah you're feeling really frustrated right now that's really hard like do you want me to just sit with you with it and like do you need a hug do you can we go for a walk or like what just being able to tend to it without trying to change it, but helping name it and helping normalize and not be alone with it. And that's usually where shame comes from. Yeah. And, you know, for the parents listening, that is, it's not easy. It's not easy when you're, you know, you've got work to get to and you've got (laughs) schedules and you've got, yeah, like it's not easy. And at the same time, you know, it's just, it's unfortunate our society, we don't live in a society in a communal society where, you know, other people, even, even to the point of like other people disciplining your kids, you know, if you live in a society where everyone kind of agrees on one style of parenting, Mm -hmm. then you trust the other adults in that kid's life to, to say, Mm -hmm. no, don't do this or to, you know, correct Mm -hmm. them in a, in a gentle way, which is really, really healthy for kids Mm -hmm. to learn that people can correct them and love them. And that is literally what the child needs Uh, to support as support and to grow. So it's not your fault. If you can't figure this out, that's again, where therapy comes into play because, you know, it's just so individualized. And so to you and your situation, since we don't have a communal way of living. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard. It's so hard. (laughs) It is very hard, but 
you know, it's, it's all a learning process. I think that's the biggest part of this too. We're talking about frustration and, for, you know, little kids getting frustrated and then how you respond to them or how you were responded to when you were a mm-hmm. kid, which means that when you feel frustration now, mm-hmm. you still tend to respond with that inner child. And if mm-hmm. that inner child was taught that frustration means I'm about to get reprimanded or I'm about to be punished in some way, then, um, as an adult, frustration feels unbearable and you do everything you can possible to minimize frustration in your life. But then when it pops up, it feels like the whole world is crashing in around you. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe the question is like, well, then how do we work with that? It's like, well, there's, (laughs) there's a lot of ways to start to like, and like we, and language of SE is like uncoupling these and experiencing them as separate rather than when frustration comes up, shame comes in and shuts you down. For looking at nervous system response, usually it's more of like collapse going in, the disconnect, maybe uh, negative thinking, maybe like more fatigue, lethargy, like when there's like a lot of shame that comes in, there's a huge shift in posture and how, and it's even really obvious when it starts to show up with clients of like the head going down, maybe the eyes being downturned. There's it, it's pretty obvious. I'm sure you've noticed it too. And so it's trying to work with the right amount of the, you know, emotion sensation that is unpleasant, that is with shame and helping to untwine, like, yeah, get them out of being connected so much so that, yeah, you have a different relationship and a different or develop an ability to trust yourself that you can be with these feelings or these unpleasant sensations or these unpleasant thoughts and make it through it. And it not mean that you are bad or that like the world is ending or that like you were going to get in some major trouble, but that you can tolerate it. Yeah. And I think the message sometimes that people will hear is like, okay, so shame is bad. Stress is bad. And something I've been working on a lot with my clients is, is helping them understand that no feeling, no feeling in and of itself is bad. Mm-hmm. And even stress and even tra- traumatic events, um, mm-hmm. they are not inherently what causes like post-traumatic right. stress responses. It's the inability to move that energy through your body when mm-hmm. you feel the shame, the guilt, the trauma, mm-hmm. the fear, and then it gets stuck in you. And then we, you know, we keep showing up with these patterns of defensiveness mm-hmm. and resentment and, and frustration and everything we're talking about that kind of stunts our ability to take action in our life that, you know, mm-hmm. is in the direction of, of how we want to live. So we work a lot and that's where somatic experiencing comes in too, is learning how to move, move the, the feelings and the sensations mm-hmm. through your body so that they don't just stay stuck in one place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think what comes up as I was thinking about our, this interview, I was thinking about some of the work around shame that I've like either watched as demos by like Peter Levine or other practitioners And I think one of my favorite comments and things like languaging that he used in a demo is sometimes when shame comes up, it is, we don't want to touch it. We don't want to work with it because it's going to collapse us. It's going to like immobilize us. Like you said, and kind of like start to slow everything down. And so he says like, yep, there's shame there. We're going to put that aside. We have other work to do. And it's, that's exactly what it is. It's like, sometimes we don't want to go into it because it's getting in the way and halting, being able to be present with the energy of the frustration, the anger, 
the like, like, yeah, your autonomy, your ability to do something, your action. And that is this balance of when do we go into it? And when do we like name it, acknowledge it, put it aside? We're like, we'll come back to that. And often after we've like done the things that the body wanted to do in response, like, it's not even like we can go back to and be like, yeah, I don't need to look at it anymore. Like that's kind of resolved on its own. And doesn't mean that you're never going to feel shame again. It's just like that piece of it in that interaction is no longer a big deal or necessarily a block. Yeah. It doesn't shut you down. It's just, oh, there's shame. Hello. Goodbye. And it just (laughs) kind of like comes and goes and it, the wave that shame is on, instead of it being like a tidal wave, now it's just a small little wind wave in the water, which is hard. You know, it takes work and practice and therapy to get to a place Mm -hmm. where, you know, you're able to feel shame and then not, not, I'm going to say, let it shut you down. But even in that language, letting it, like, I think that just really gets to people. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm, I'm letting this happen. And that just, again, that's just shame. Like right there is shame doing its job. Right. Right. And yeah. And I, and (laughs) And I think that's where the education of like, yeah, it shuts you down because whatever thing that you're feeling was too intense and overwhelmed. So like you didn't have the tools yet. So like, yeah, your brain shut you down. That's fine. Which is protective. Right. And in this kind of, I guess, like leads into like other ways of like, how, how do we move through the shutdown of shame is like, well, we were with it. And I've been working with some people on this is like, to be in that shutdown and freeze response and not try and jolt out of it. And so like, how can we be in like, in that response without like floating away or completely disappearing? And I use those terms because often when we are completely disconnected or shut down, like we sometimes feel like we are, there's no gravity or we're like on the ceiling. Sounds weird. But if you ever had that experience of like, I'm not present and I'm observing things from above, you're like, I feel like I'm invisible or like, I want to disappear. That is that sense of like, yeah, you're really kind of disconnecting. And so when we notice that start to happen, how can we stay somewhat connected to someone else or our present moment? And ideally it's like with someone else, we want to do this in community. How can I, like, if someone else is in the room, can I make physical contact while also noticing this other thing happening? Can I notice the sounds or a texture of something that in my hands, like what, is there a little bit of movement available? Well, this like kind of shut down moves through so that it doesn't take over. Yeah. It's kind of like learning how to feel two things at once. Yeah. Which Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us are so, you know, we, we all kind of multitask to a certain extent, (laughs) which multitasking can be really, it can hinder a lot of productivity. But my point is that it feels like we're able to do multiple things at once, but when it comes to feelings and emotions, most of us, like, I mean, that's why shame shuts us down. We feel this (laughs) anger. We feel shame about it because Uh shame and then shame does its job. It it shuts down the anger and we just feel shame. Mm -hmm. So we want to learn how to hold the hand of shame and also Mm -hmm. feel our anger while also holding on to something that, that grounds us and resources us so that we can, we can move through those two really hard feelings. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what SE is about. <laughs> yeah. So uh, simple. And so simple guys. Don't you, you understand now? <laughs> uh, oh yeah. It's, it's so not simple. And I mean, I even, I struggled so much. I, I saw an SE therapist 
myself and we had seven sessions and I was like, I'm going to, I'm just going to stick it through. I'm going to keep, keep going. Cause I hadn't mm-hmm. been able to find a therapist that I really clicked with since grad school. Mm-hmm. And after seven sessions, she fired me. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> and I was like, oh no, like, am I never going to be able to, you know, be a somatic therapist? Like I had all of this stuff come up. Right. Um, and I share this willingly and openly because yeah. I just think it's so important for people to know, like one, it's not just about some magic technique that is going to, like, it just, it doesn't work for everyone. And it also doesn't work if the relationship with you and the Mm -hmm. therapist isn't, isn't there. And sometimes it's not there because you just don't get along with everyone and you don't know who the therapist is when you're calling them. And yes, we do a 15 minute consult call and and Mm -hmm. we hope to do the best we can in that. But sometimes it takes a few sessions Mm -hmm. before you learn, like, this is not, it's not the right fit. Yeah. And that can be confusing too. Cause you know, sometimes we have a tendency to flee or to run. So then you're like, is this a bad fit or am I just, mm-hmm. running? <laughs> or am I just uncomfortable and needing to wanting to not feel the uncomfortableness? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. yeah absolutely. Uh, absolutely. But yeah. And I think, I don't know if I made the point clear earlier. I just wanted to circle back along to like feeling shame when there's a reduction in pain. Um, Mm -hmm. just, just for, I really want people to hear and to know that everything we just talked about over the last, you know, 20, 30 minutes about shame still relates. It relates back to this because we have to learn how to feel shame, let it, let it kind of move it aside, like feel it, let it go so that we can then honestly feel, feel that reduction in pain without kind of moving back into a higher level of pain and getting stuck in it again, knowing too, that sometimes it's not just about, again, like maybe you work really hard on, on shame and you're doing really good at this. You can feel the pain reduce. It doesn't mean your pain isn't going to increase again. Like it ebbs and flows just like Mm -hmm. shame does and other emotions. So Mm -hmm. that's really what we're talking about acceptance. Yeah. And essentially like normalizing that that's an, a normal thing to to feel to experience to think to question when starting to yeah to notice reduction or shifts in pain or symptoms yeah, um, yeah. everything has cycles and seasons and you know mm-hmm. our body our body does too everything mm-hmm. comes and, and goes and if you study nature which is the founder of somatic experiencing. That's really how he, he started all this was by studying mm-hmm. animals and studying nature and noticing that there's all these rhythms and cycles in nature. There's a really good book called braiding Sweetgrass that she just talks about really just nature. And like in, in her stories about nature, she's a native American woman who just truly has such a depth of knowledge around plants and and how they grow. And and she has all these stories about womanhood and motherhood and family Mm -hmm. and community. And it's such a beautiful book. So I really recommend if you're not like a a sciencey type person, but you want to kind of get into (laughs) like this concept, that's a really good book to try. And then I think there's also another one it's called rhythms and I'm going to look it up rhythms and therapy, rhythms and nature. If I can't, if I can't find it in Google right now, I'll put it in the show notes, but have got it on my, on my shelf somewhere, but there's one that's a little more sciencey for people to kind of learn about. So yeah. What other thoughts, anything else come up for you, Lexi? I think the one last piece that I was thinking about this, that usually goes hand in hand with shame and it goes back to some of our belief systems around it is usually it's like very common for my, for people who experience 
chronic pain or illness or chronic anxiety or whatever and have shame, it's perfectionism tends to be like go hand in hand. And a lot of the perfectionism is a level of protectiveness from shame. So we don't, so we try and find ways to not feel it because, you know, shame doesn't feel good. We don't like that. And so often where our brain goes, which logically can make sense, but in application doesn't, is if I do everything right, if I do X, Y, Z, if I show up in this way, if I don't have any needs at all, then I will, like everything will be fine. I won't have to feel shame or have to feel really anything. And so the perfectionism can often be a part of it and sometimes is a more accessible, available thing to start working with rather than the shame itself or help kind of be an avenue to look, to help clients or ourselves identify like, where did this come from? What belief systems is supporting this perfectionism? Because sometimes we talk about shame, that's like feels too intense and too much for people. So if we can work with something that is more or like less intense, sometimes perfectionism tends, tends to be that. Yeah. I like what you said too, just if I can learn to not have any needs <laughs> and I won't, I won't ever feel disappointed by people not, I mean, you didn't say this last part, but that's kind of where my brain yeah. goes and mm-hmm. I won't feel disappointed by the people who don't provide the needs that I'm looking for. Or if I don't myself meet those standards. Right. Right. I think it's just interesting to go back to, again, like, where did we learn this? Cause this is a societal thing. America is very mm-hmm. perfectionistic and my therapist in undergrad t- gave me something that just stuck with me for forever. And it was a story about how, not a story, but it was the fact that in, in kind of pre-industrial revolution, it was commonplace and normal for men, women, anyone to cry in public. And if somebody was crying in public, people kind of rallied around them. And what this meant was when we were then working in industrialized kind of offices and factory, if you're crying over something, whether it's real, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, like something horrific or something you stubbed your toe, like people Mm -hmm. would come and rally around you, which meant people stopped working and stopped productivity. So then managers were told by the, you know, owners of these companies, don't let that happen anymore. Mm -hmm. And so societally, we started to learn, don't, don't cry, don't cry in public, don't cry in front of people. And shame is what helps us shut all shut down our emotions. So mm-hmm. that's kind of, that's what happened. So we learned don't have emotional needs, don't care about anything so that you don't get hurt and that you don't stop producing. So <laughs> exactly. just, just a little anecdotal kind of thing to, to keep with you as you think about why do I care so much if things are, are perfect and I don't feel anything like, why yeah. are we shameful about these emotions? And for me, I look at it through this capitalist lens of mm-hmm. it, it reduces productivity. So is that, is that what is most important to you? Do you want that to continue to be most important to you? Some, some food for thought. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Just yeah. some light conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh man. Well, I really appreciate your time, Lexi, as always. Mm-hmm. And else you want to leave people with today or. No, I think, I think that's. Yeah, I think I talked a lot about it, all the different things. I think I'm all good. I appreciate you being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me again. Absolutely. If you learned something new today, consider writing it down in your phone notes or journal and make that new neural pathway light up. Better yet, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a DM on Instagram, email me, or leave a voice memo for us to play on the next show. 
The way you summarize your takeaways can be the perfect little soundbite that someone else might need in order to better absorb the same lesson. Lastly, leaving a review really helps others find this podcast, so please do so if you found this episode helpful.